You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast featuring some of Indiana's most fascinating men and women whose impact has shaped our state, our communities, and us. Join us as we discuss their imprint on our history. Leaders and Legends is brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated, your local veteran business enterprise specializing in public relations, media relations, public outreach, crisis communications, and digital photography. My name is Robert Bain, Principal of Veteran Strategies, former Deputy Chief of Staff to Mayor Greg Ballard, and Communications Director for the Indiana Republican Party. I'm honored to be your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel and Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose, McKinney, and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today on Leaders and Legends is Indianapolis star journalist Dave Lindquist. Uh, He comes highly recommended by Mark Allen, who's the unofficial music critic of the Leaders and Legends podcast. (laughs) David, thank you very, very much for coming on. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for asking me. Uh, Boy, that's a a heavy title of your podcast. I can only aspire to either of those. I, I think I fall... Far short. You, Mitch Daniels, Sammy right. Davis, who received the Medal of Honor. It's the, it's the three right there. It's We usually don't date these podcasts. In other words, we don't make temporal references. But it's a, it's a strange time. And so let me just start very quickly before we get into your background and career. What is it like to be a journalist with a heavy responsibility in the largest newspaper in the state during the time of the coronavirus and all its effects? Uh, Well, my expertise is uh, popular culture. Um, I often describe my job as wherever pop culture in Indiana intersect, that's what I cover. Um, So a lot of that's not important uh, right now in the the big picture. at the star, we've actually kind of uh, made triage triage teams of reporters. Right. Uh, so I'm not reporting about. Well, I am reporting about popular culture, but I'm I'm also uh, like I wrote a story about uh, the convention industry, um, just kind of some of the the economic effects on the on the periphery of, of some of the things I cover. Um, we just lost our great uh, food reporter, Liz Biro. She uh, moved right. back to North Carolina. So I wrote my first ever food story the other day, which was uh, timely and topical about uh, baking bread. That seems like the pandemic pastime for a lot of people. But it's, it, my colleagues are just uh, going above and beyond, um, really doing some incredible work. Um, our, our sports our high school sports reporter uh, did a piece the other day about the uh, high school basketball sectional game. Yeah, I saw that. Where, you know, five attendees have, have passed after being diagnosed. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's for my main gig, uh, everything's up in the air, you know. Uh, 
March twelfth. March twelfth is the day I think that I'll I'll always remember because uh, that was the day um, that they were okay. We're gonna have a Big Ten tournament games today with no audience but then the ncaa tournament went down and then they canceled the big 10 tournament and uh, i think that was the day where people really kind of realized how big all of this is and i mean the concert industry is dying it's or it's 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 stymied at best and but but let me ask you a question about that real quick at a time where people are looking for let me say it a different way. In times of trouble, I won't quote the rest of the song. When people are looking for something to cheer them up, whether it's health related or, or economics, usually that's popular culture. Sure. Sports, concerts, theater, all those movies, all those things are gone. What is your sense of the impact that is having the loss of this ancillary source of fun and, and smiles and optimism on people's moods generally. One of the things that you read when you read about the effect of, of past influenza epidemics is the depression that victims feel that's a direct result of the disease. You combine that with that their normal escapes are not there anymore. What's your prediction, which your off-the-record prediction, you won't be held accountable for what this is going to mean in the next six months or so for the beat you cover? Uh, yeah, that's a huge question. Um, I guess, personally, I can think about what I've been doing is uh, every night, six nights a week, um, one of my favorite musicians, uh, Jeff Tweedy, leader of the band Wilco, he has an hour-long Instagram kind of family hour. It's like a, just kind of a fun variety show with uh, his wife. She mans the the phone camera and his two sons are with him. His two sons are like 22 and 18 and they're great musicians. And Jeff will like play and sing five songs a night and the brothers each get two covers a night. And they, they just field questions uh, from the audience. And I think a lot of us have, uh, been given like this peek inside, like inside the personal lives of a lot of quote unquote rock stars or or celebrities in all this. And I mean, already since I started writing for the star in 1998, uh, just as Napster was coming along and, you know, really destroying a lot of what the music industry was. So uh, one effect that might be is like just more the chipping away of uh, celebrity kind of a uh, flattening of, of distance between our artistic heroes and ourselves, whether that's a, a good thing or bad thing. Um, how big can a concert be until we have a vaccination? I mean, that's, I think that's a huge question. Um, at the beginning, will venues like the Hi-Fi and Melody Inn and Radio Radio mm-hmm. uh, be somewhat popular and, and really hot because maybe they can say, all right, 
this is a band you may have may have not know. This might be a, a local band, but you can come here. We can we can sell a hundred tickets and practice social distancing. And those might be the hottest events around. I'm not sure. I'm not I'm not saying that's a, a slam dunk, but I can certainly see how that would be appealing to people. I get these emails from Ticketmaster and Vivid Seats and, you know, these kind of uh, concert and sporting event ticket brokers. I just don't even open them anymore, figuring that it's it's superfluous. Like, I'll wait until there's another time for the for the people. Indianapolis is a great concert town. I believe we get the biggest artists most of the time. And it always seems to be packed. The last few or three or four concerts I went to, uh, I went to Tool, I went to Van Halen, uh, Elton John when he was here, not Elton John, um, um, I can't remember, but the last Billy couple, Joel? yes, the couple three or four were absolutely packed. Not only the venues, but the artists rely on this income, let alone the ancillary uh, benefit to bars and restaurants how long do you think people can go not only artists but small business owners and the people who plan cities and events of cities let alone just the ordinary goers concert goers before they say look we just don't care anymore we're just (laughs) going to have these things and we're going to treat the coronavirus like we treat crime we don't sit at home and bolt the door we go out and we manage risk and we take risks and and it's we make a value decision that it's worth it for us. Do you think that's a possibility that at a certain point a, a young a band is just going to go come watch us play, and if you take your chances, you take your chances? I could see that happening. Um, I'm not sure if a venue like the shows you were just talking about have been in places like uh, Bankers Life Fieldhouse and Ruoff Music Center. Um, I don't know if they'll play along with that kind of thing, but uh, yeah, I definitely could see it happening. I mean, rock and roll is, we'll get to country music and other aspects later, but I mean, what would the Sex Pistols be doing right now? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Saying the hell with it. Come, come to our shows. Right. Well, that's, that's, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, it might be very soon that we might see, like underground, literally underground basement shows or, or things like that. But in terms of the artists, it's all about touring um, today because so little money, they can't rely on sales of recordings or streams to be a, a large part of their their income. It, it, it has to be done on the road. And so like... Go ahead. Yesterday, Dead & Company... They packed it in. They're like, we're not going to go out this summer. Dead and Company is not an average band. I mean, Dead and Company can go out and play or not go out and play, and they're still very, very wealthy, all those guys. Um, I was one of the things that really uh, was jarring to me was how early um, uh, Zach Brown bands, a pretty big uh, country slash pop band. And it was very early where Zach Brown said, uh, I'm sorry, I just laid off my entire crew. And and that was, like I said, that was a little jarring to me. So yeah, there's not a, I mean, the whole thing about the concert industry that people might not realize is that the margins, profit margins are razor thin. Um, 
if you're a promoter and say, well, we'll just use very round numbers. So you're a promoter and you want to do a show for 10,000, 12,000 fans, right? And your budget is a million bucks. Uh, 850,000 of that is probably going to the artist. So you're not, you're not, the margins are, are very, very thin on these shows, I guess. So um, how long can we go without it and, and not have a lot of people hurt in the industry financially? Uh, not very long. Before we go back to where you're from and the start of your career and all the places that you've written, you mentioned something that is hard to believe. It's an, I would say it's an anachronistic term at the moment, which shows you how quickly things change. You mentioned Napster. Yeah. What was and is its effects or that industry, that technology's effects on the music business? How did it affect it then? And what are the effects now? Okay. Um, I don't know how, how blatantly we need to explain what it was, but Napster was uh, the first kind of renegade company to facilitate uh, downloading of music. Rip a, rip a CD, make a, an electronic file of a song, and then share it with anyone and, and everyone who can uh, get online, uh, basically. So, yeah, in the late 90s, um, that basically freaked the, the music industry out because instead of selling, you know, a CD to almost everyone who was a fan of the, of the artist, um, hundreds and thousands of people are, are having a, uh, you know, an exact replication of, of the song. It's, it's like way back when in the 70s, uh, the music industry was scared of uh, tape, tape recorders. Sure. You know, home recording is killing the music industry. Well, it didn't really happen that way. I mean, I was a kid in the 80s, and I would use my home stereo and cassette deck to, like, record the top nine at nine from my, uh, <laughs> the radio station that I listened to in central Illinois. Um, but it really came to be uh, with, with uh, um, MP3 downloads. So, you know, obviously the era we live in now, a lot of people listen to music on Spotify or Apple music. And, uh, you know, the, the billboard charts are no longer a reflection of sales. The billboard charts are this, uh, you know, kind of make-believe representation <laughs> where they, they say, oh, you streamed this many times and somebody heard your song in a commercial or they used it in a bumper on CNN. And like all those uh, plays um, factor into the chart. Um, I've, but didn't I've, didn't Pearl Jam, as I recall, testify before Congress about what a ripoff Napster was? Well, they no. Well, Pearl Jam's beef was with Ticketmaster. Okay, uh, I'm sorry. Thank you. Metallica was the band that yes uh, tried to go up against Napster, and to the music consumers, they didn't think Metallica was 
heroic. Um, we all want free. Yeah, that's that's the society we live in, Robert. <laughs> uh, but uh, I've had the uh, opportunity to interview John Mellencamp many times through the years, and he, when when Napster uh, was was kind of uh, coming onto the scene, it was a like the entire uh, music world and basically all of pop culture has been uh, uh, kind of shattered. He would, he would talk about like when Hurt So Good and Jack and Diane were at the top of the charts, everyone in America knew those songs because, you know, everything was very um, formatted. Like everyone heard what was the top 40 and, Today it's very different. Like a song can be number one and exactly. 90% of the public doesn't even know the song. So that's, that might be a nostalgic negative to say, wow, we all used to know what the number one song is. Uh, the flip side of that is because there's so much uh, striation in the, in the, in the world of popular culture, there's a band from Indiana called the Reverend Peyton's big damn band probably unknown to 99% of uh, the world, but because of uh, online distribution and promotion and social media, they can go into basically any city in the United States and many cities in Europe and play to 500 to 750 people every night. So that's a, that's a band that has a career without being um, celebrities. And I guess that kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier about what the new world of, of entertainment might be is, uh, you know, we've just, been, we've been edging toward this where we're all fans of working musicians and maybe not, you know, Van Halen rolling in with the circus. Well, is it, what would Casey Kasem be doing today? No more Casey Kasem top Casey Kasem top forty long distance dedication none of that stuff. That's actually uh, some comfort entertainment. Is I think iHeartRadio has a a channel that all they play are American top forty episodes from the seventies and eighties. We're going to talk about music then versus music now here in a little bit. Uh, we're on with David Lindquist, who journalist for the Indianapolis Star, pop culture critic is pop culture writer, uh, not from Indiana originally, from Illinois, if, if I remember correctly. How did you matriculate over here to the Hoosier State? Uh, yeah, that's. I grew up in uh, central Illinois, a very small town called Chatsworth, uh, 1,300 residents. Um, so that's about an hour north of Champaign if you're on I-57, and about an hour northeast of Bloomington Normal if you're on I-55. Um, so as a farming community, um, I was always super into sports as a kid. Um, my parents got me a subscription to Sports Illustrated when I was 10. And that was it. I was like, I want to be a writer. I want to be a journalist. Um, I carried the Daily Panagraph from Bloomington as a kid. So like, I did the paper route thing. Um, I went to college at Eastern Illinois University in Charleston, 
which is like another hour south of Champaign, so about two hours south of where I grew up, and uh, spent the first two years uh, writing about sports uh, for the student newspaper. Uh, the last two years were more of like I edited the Weekend magazine, and then I was the editor in chief. Uh, Eastern Illinois University, if you don't know, it's one of the fine directional schools of <laughs> Illinois, uh, but uh, cradle of quarterbacks. Uh, we got uh, Tony Garoppolo, uh, Tony Romo, Sean Payton, all went to Eastern. Um, but the thing about uh, the journalism industry, right when I was graduating in 1991, is that Eastern was one of the first schools in America to use uh, computer pagination to put the newspaper together rather than what they call paste up, which is, you know, you print out pieces of paper and then assemble them with paste and knives onto another piece of paper. And then you make a negative of it. And then you put the negative on a piece of metal and you put the piece of metal on the press. Uh, Computer pagination basically meant you went straight from uh, assembling it on a computer to the piece of metal that goes on the press. So, now, what I'm hearing from you just real quickly is we've had quite a few journalists on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Bill Benner, uh, who's terrific. Jim Shella, who I love. The All amazing, legends. Yes, the, <laughs> the, amazing, uh, the amazing and wonderful and brassy and, and delightful Amanda Kingsbury. Yes, very close colleague of mine. David Barris. Yeah, yeah, she's terrific. And of course, my good friend and uh, fellow conservative, Mr. Tim Swearens. And what every one of those journalists has said mirrors exactly what you just said. When I was a kid, I decided to. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that is? I mean, some professions are called callings, accurately, mostly teachers being one of them. A lot of people want to be cops or firemen when they're little kids. But every one of those people who I've talked to, and I hope to talk to more, caught the bug in grade school or high school. I believe, if I remember from a personal conversation, and I don't think she would mind, uh, Suzette Hackney from the Indianapolis Star, the community engagement editor, uh, had her own little broadsheet called the Hackney Herald Nice. (laughs) when she was a kid. I told her it should have been called the Suzette Gazette, but (laughs) that's another story. What is it about journalism writing, interviewing that made it so attractive to you, even at a young age? That's a good question. Um, I think my my own personality is one where I don't crave the limelight, but I like to be close to the action. Um, I was not going to be a major league baseball player or play in the NBA. <laughs> that was or quarterback. Right. None of, none of that was going to happen. Um, but I just, sports writing was very uh, easy for me to romanticize. And I mean, it kind of goes in hand in hand with if you excel at something at school and you kind of put the, pieces together, you know, Oh, maybe that's something I could do. Have you ever regretted it? No, no. 
never thought, man, I should have been a teacher or I should have been a fireman or <laughs> an electrician. Uh, I mean, tough times in journalism these days. Yeah, it has been yeah, for yeah. like the sat last several decades. <laughs> if I could just slide into something, it would. I would love to uh, be an archivist, like work in a library and hmm. archive and study and dig into old stuff and repurpose it because that's somewhat part of my job now. Um, but nah, I don't think I could do anything else. <laughs> we, might, we might find out. We might find out. Uh, you are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel and Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose, McKinney, and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. We are on today with David Lindquist, pop culture writer at the Indianapolis Star, David, is there a Hoosier leader or legend you particularly admire? Oh, so we have to go back to uh, my paper route days. Uh, I'd get up every morning to deliver papers at 5.30, and then I would get home, and before I would go to school, I would watch the previous night's episode on the unpopular, the popular then VHS format of the old Late Night with David Letterman show on NBC. Um, so yeah, Dave's been my guy for forever. Have you had a chance to interview him or interact with him? Break bread? Uh, a couple, at least two interviews. Uh, the first time I talked with him uh, was right on the track before a race. And uh, I have to thank uh, my former colleague, Kathy Keitlinger, for the tip. Kathy was at the Who start. is awesome. Yeah. yeah she... Uh, would write about uh, kind of social uh, things in Indianapolis. And uh, she knew that team owners, you know, would go to their cars right before the race. Uh, so I'm trying to think of who the Ray Hall Letterman Lanigan driver was this year. Let's just say it was uh, young Graham Ray Hall. So I had, I had access to the track and I was kind of standing close to Graham's car and I kind of heard a commotion over my shoulder and I turned and there's Dave himself. And I just kind of caught him right in stride as he was walking. And I told the anecdote I just told you about when I was a kid, I was a paper boy and would tape a show. And he's like, oh, I used to carry, I think he carried multiple paper. He, he might've carried both the star and the Indianapolis times here in Indianapolis. Um, but it was the year that um, he had announced that he was going to do the show at CBS for like one more year. Sure. So I quickly was just like uh, trying to ask him about favorite Indiana guests. And he said, uh, you know, I love the drivers come on. They're always uh, super entertaining. I think he might've mentioned Peyton Manning and I know that uh, Dave always had an affection for singer-songwriter Warren Zevon. 
was always on his show many times. Whom about whom you just posted, and we're going to ask about that oh, on yeah, Facebook. Yeah. Sure. Uh, yeah, that's interesting timing. Uh, <laughs> so I always kind of made a, a correlation between Warren and John Hyatt, the great Indianapolis singer songwriter. So I kind of led Dave into like, uh, I know you love Warren. Uh, what about John Hyatt? Do you like having John on the show? And uh, Dave's like, yeah, John's great. So there we are at that point, you know, very superficial, quick uh, conversation on the track right before the 500 mile race. And Dave goes, uh, you know, speaking of Warren, I'll never forget the last time he was on the show. And if uh, people are not familiar with Warren Zevon, um, had kind of an up and down career commercially, but always was just a great songwriter. Uh, unfortunately, uh, had cancer and died, uh, but he knew it was coming. He knew the end was coming. So he put out, I think, at least two records that were very uh, mortality themed, uh, real uh, touching, emotive records. So you want to name a couple time. of his songs for the people who don't? Well, people no probably know Warren Zevon for uh, Werewolves of London, uh, great songs like Lawyers, Guns, and Money. Uh, but so at the end of his career, he wrote uh, these songs. Like one, one people, people always quote one of his songs from this era, uh, Enjoy Every Sandwich, uh, which is a, a very great way to think about life and its fleetingness and, and how you could live in the moment if you can. Uh, so anyway, David Letterman's like, uh, so it was Warren's last show. We knew it was going to be his last show. And I went up to see him in the dressing room after the show. And I just, uh, you know, poked my head in and said, uh, thanks for everything, Warren. And he's like, so then Warren called me into the dressing room and turned and handed me his guitar. So like Letterman's like, nothing like this has ever happened. It was like super emotional for him. So that was like a pretty good, you know, 90 second interview on the track oh, uh, sure. with David Letterman. So I really appreciated that. And then I think the next year when he did retire, I was part of a kind of a salt, small scrum in the garage there in gasoline alley with Dave. You came to the Indianapolis Star, I believe, is it 1999, 98? May of 98. And you came from, is it Northwest Times of Indiana? Is that was your first The first Times of Northwest Indiana was my stop right before here, yeah. Now, we have ancillary researchers and helpers here on the oh and Legends podcast. <laughs> now, most of the time, it's Bill Benner. But in this case, uh, you know, we want to give credit. There's no plagiarism here on the podcast. So we give credit where credit's due. So I reached out to Mark Allen, who's there's not a better person walking in Indiana in the earth than Mark Allen. We agree on very little, except uh, I'm incredibly, incredibly lucky to have his friendship. So I reached out to him and said, OK, give me some scoops because I don't know, David. When you go, this is one of the questions. Mark's been on the podcast twice, um, once about his career, and then we brought him back on to talk about the interviews that he's posted on YouTube, which are terrific. 
when you go to interview someone, difficult isn't the word that I'm trying to say, but is it is it ever Star Trek fan struck? Like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm asking questions yeah. of David Letterman or, you know, insert famous person you listened to when you were in high school here. Right, right. Uh, so yeah, the summer of 98, my first summer in Indianapolis, um, the first phone interview that kind of really gave me goosebumps was uh, John Fogarty of uh, Creedence Clearwater Revival. And he could not have been nicer. Uh, and, you know, looking at his career, he's certainly a salt of the earth kind of guy. But yeah, that was like, oh my gosh, I'm talking to John Fogarty. And in recent years, I have to be honest, uh, I got to do a, a dual phone interview with Steve Martin and Martin Short. Oh my. That, that was a blast. And everything that you want those guys to give you, uh, they gave. But I mean, so here's the, here's the thing about phone interviews. Um, uh, in my inbox every day, I get, 15 to 20 publicists sending me an email saying, wouldn't you like to talk to this artist? Right. Nice so phrasing. People, nice phrasing. Wouldn't <laughs> you like to? Those, those people are coming at me. Right. And meanwhile, my wish list uh, often are acts that are, that don't need, they don't need an interview. Like they don't have publicists who are sending email to the Indianapolis star asking for an interview. So the best case scenario is where the level of interest is, is, is equal. I want to talk to the person and that that person is willing to talk to uh, someone from the Indianapolis star. So if we can, if we can broker the deal and schedule an interview, then my time with this artist becomes something on a list. It's a 15 minute slot. And maybe once a week, this artist has to devote four hours to probably the last thing they want to do. And that's phone interviews, right? Sure. Uh, so they're in a room and someone sends them an email that says, okay, 10 a.m., the Cleveland Plain Dealer, 10.15, the Detroit Free Press, uh, 10.30, St. Louis, St. Louis Post-Dispatch, 10.45, Indianapolis Star, right? So these are very... It's it's too impersonal, really, to get too uh, hung up on on being starstruck. I guess is is what I'm saying. Did you have have you had artists with whom you were generous with your time, knowing it was important to them, as perhaps they were first starting out? Remember That's, that. Yeah. They get big. And now you want to talk to them and they're like, you know what? That Linquist guy called me when I was playing to 150 people. Yeah, I'm playing to 15,000 people tonight. I want to talk to him. That's an interesting question. Uh, the first person that comes to mind is someone who I think is definitely one of the top five guitarists on the planet uh, living today. And that's a, I wanted to call him a kid. He's not a kid anymore, but uh, Derek Trucks, uh, just an amazing guitar player who, uh, Kind of came up through the ranks under the uh, umbrella of the Allman Brothers because his uncle, uh, Butch, was a drummer in that band. And Derek plays in a style 
that's almost eerily close to uh, Dwayne Allman, the uh, slide player. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, I can literally say, and this is maybe happened once in my entire career is that, you know, the second time I talked to Derek trucks, he mentioned the first time that we spoke and he was very appreciative. So hard to believe Dwayne Allman's been gone nearly 50 years. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I, and I had to catch myself cause I almost started to say, you know, the late Almond brother, but uh, we've also lost Greg. You mentioned him as being one of the five uh, best guitarists on the planet. Care Boy, to I just, other... opened my, just opened myself up, right? <laughs> uh, Care to right, name is, your other four? This is just off the top of my head. Uh, Trey Anastasio, uh, Annie Clark, who records under the name St. Vincent. So that's three, right? Uh, you know, Gary Clark Jr. is very inventive. Um, and let's leave it at that. Are you a fan of, of the shredder type? Guitarists, Ingve Malmsteen, Steve Vai, eh. Joe Satriani, those sorts see, of... See, yeah, so that's like the other end of the spectrum of what Derek Trucks does. Derek Trucks uh, plays minimal amount of notes and coaxes so much out of them. Uh, but yeah, when I was a kid, Eddie Van Halen, I thought, was it. You know, I would evangelize for Eddie Van Halen to all my, all my friends. Uh, but well, you know, there's a lot of people who agree with you on that, of what he, that there's electric guitar, rock and roll guitar before Van Halen and there's guitar after (laughs) Van Halen. And, you know, when someone like Brian May writes in a book that Eddie Van Halen represents the pinnacle of guitar playing in my lifetime. Yeah. Yeah. So you and Brian May. Well, that, and that's, What's incredible about Brian May is you can hear three notes of guitar and know that it's Brian May. He had such, has such a distinctive tone and, and like Stevie Ray Vaughan just caresses the notes in a, in a, in a way. Yeah. Stevie Ray, love Stevie Ray. Um, Go ahead. ahead. In the late eighties, uh, I was going to summer school one year at Eastern and somewhere down South in Southern Illinois, there was a place called the Ducoin state fair. I don't know how they got away with calling their fair also a state fair when it wasn't the Indiana state fair, (laughs) but saw Stevie Ray Vaughan with the Thunderbirds as the opening act for six bucks. And that, that was definitely an all timer. With his brother, Jimmy playing guitar for the fabulous Thunderbirds. Yeah. Stevie Ray Vaughan's cover of Stevie Wonder's Superstition is my favorite cover version of any song ever. Nice, nice. Right now, my my Instagram live project for this month is all covers April. So that's a good thought. I I saw that. I might squeeze that in. Did, not necessarily guitarists before we move on, but all the concerts you've been to, you've seen them up close. Can you think of one or two performers that just made you shake your head just like i cannot believe how good this person is at his or her chosen craft okay uh roger waters uh from pink floyd is he has like some superpower on stage (laughs) because he's not a great singer uh 
he's a bass player, so he's not going to knock you out with any uh, prestidigitation. But his shows are unparalleled. I mean, if, if you talk about the best shows I've seen since I've been in Indianapolis, uh, two Roger Waters shows are, are probably in the top 10. I went to the Wall concert. Yeah. And it was fabulous. Just the whole production. I mean, he spared no expense. They played the songs. He played the songs you wanted to hear him play. Well, I can tell, I can tell a little story on myself from that show. And that, that speaks to uh, how things have changed in the concert world and the world of concert coverage. Um, So that was the wall at Banker's Life Fieldhouse. And at the beginning of the show, I've got my phone out, right? Because I want to take a picture. I want to tweet. I might tweet a few observations uh, about the show because that's kind of how you cover a concert uh, today. And about three songs into the show, a gentleman to my right, who I I don't know, kind of nudges me brusquely on my arm. And he's like, "Uh, is that a good concert on your phone? You know, saying, you know, we're here. This is the event. Why are you... Uh, using your phone. And that's certainly something that annoys a lot of people is seeing people, uh, seeing fellow concert goers squander the experience of a show, whether they're uh, recording or hopefully not even paying attention to the show, texting someone or what, whatever. He wasn't but, security. He was just some punk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He, he was, he was someone saying to me, dude, why are you on your phone when this is happening right in front of us? And I remember one of the two times that Paul McCartney came to Banker's Life Fieldhouse, that his video screens were so huge oh. and high definition, right? That while I'm at that show, more than once I would I would catch myself. I'm like, don't look at the video screen. Paul McCartney is right <laughs> there. Uh, so I mean, these are all 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 experiential things that I think tie into what we're uh, going through right now. Um, live streaming is obviously having a moment during the uh, pandemic. And it's just interesting to see how low quality some, you know, international artists are willing to to put out there into the world. And then some other people really have a knack for it. And whether that becomes a revenue stream, you know, I mean, that's what, that's what, obviously that's what the, the industry is interested in is like, Oh, if we can't, do shows in arenas how can we maximize you know maybe some of this live streaming stuff you mentioned a couple of folks who you had talked to celebrities or musicians who were kind to you pleasant generous so i have to ask the question (laughs) of okay who was just a jerk well i had uh I, i do have some stories in this regard uh we'll take a couple okay I learned a lesson with Art Garfunkel that uh, if you think you have a question that might annoy or irritate or be a question the person doesn't really want to answer, save it for the end of the interview. Because if it's at the end of the interview, you're not really out of anything. It's, it's over. But I did not, <laughs> I guess I did not learn this lesson when I talked to Art Garfunkel uh, once. Art was coming to do a solo show and Art of course, made his name as a member of Simon and Garfunkel. And the Simon, Garf- Simon and Garfunkel sound is, you know, Paul Simon, singer-songwriter, 
you know, a conventional voice and Art Garfunkel with this angelic high harmony always, and in some songs singing the lead with that voice. So after the breakup of Simon and Garfunkel, clearly Paul Simon has this huge solo career, right? Sure. And uh, I was about halfway through this interview with Art Garfunkel. And I said, uh, Art, do you ever think about what your voice might've added to uh, Graceland, the, the great Paul Simon album uh, or, or, or other works, right? That's, that was my question. And you could just, you could hear through the phone, <laughs> Art's neck kind of snap to the side. And he's like, I don't like that question. Why don't you go ask Paul Simon what he could have added to my solo recordings? What solo recordings? Exactly. It's like, you need a little better self-awareness there, Art, is, is what, <laughs> what went through my mind. And so the, so the next eight minutes of that phone interview were rough. Because basically on every answer, he kind of circled back and was like, that was a jerky question. Why did you ask that? But you see uh, these celebrities who, I mean, the most famous example that we have on video in the last few years is when Megan Kelly asked Jane Fonda about her plastic surgery. Yeah. And Jay, you might as well just have asked Hanoi, you know, Hanoi Jane there, you know, how are the accommodations? The look of incredulity on Jane's face of like, how dare you ask me that question? I mean, is that something that you've, you obviously just encountered it and what you talked about yeah. with our Garfunkel, but it's like, look, we're doing the favor of this interview. We don't expect any tough questions. And is that right. hard to do as a journalist? Um, hmm. You just, well, I, I will pause real quick and say that we had redemption. A couple of years later, I interviewed Art, and he was a complete sweetheart. It was a great interview. Um, you led with a different question? Yeah, we didn't. Uh, well, I mean, I'm, I'm going to be frank. Uh, I write about entertainment. So when I delve into difficult or uh, provocative questions, um, I'm not... I'm not going for gotcha moments and I'm all, I don't, I also, I don't have the, uh, the responsibility of some of my counterparts in news when they're, when they're covering things and interviewing public figures. I mean, that's holding their feet to the fire is, is part of the deal. So I don't know. It's like, I don't think it's fair to, uh, ask a musician about a controversy that's like 30 years in the rearview mirror. Um, Asking the stones about Altamont, that would be right. too far back. Yeah. You know, I mean, last summer it would have been a good question because it was the 50th anniversary, but yeah, that's, that's generally uh, it. Um, was I, I had something I lost it. Uh, but do they expect it? Do they like, look, we're doing you a favor. If you ask tough questions, when we come back, you're not going to talk to artist X and we're going to remember. Yeah. I'm way past that. I don't, I can't even care about that. It, it, I, that's not a, a threat that I don't think is, is held over. And sometimes uh, uh, fans will, will, will make a comment like, he gave that act a bad review. They're not going to come back. And let me assure you, <laughs> uh, if there's a promoter willing to pay that artist, 
that artist will be back. So yeah, I don't think I have that kind of influence. Have you had just, whether it's phone or in person or whatever, just conversations with musicians or celebrities that are just so painful or become contentious immediately. And then let me ask quickly, because this is something we talked about with Mark or you wrote a review of their performance and it's gotten back to them and they've rung you up and said, dude. Yeah. Well, he, yeah, Mark has the, Phil um, Collins. <laughs> un, well, well, yeah, Phil Collins is undefeated. His uh, Axl Rose facts is undefeated. <laughs> His uh, Brantford Marcellus Jay Leno interview is pretty tough to top. Um, I did get a what I thought was a pretty funny email from uh, Toby Keith's manager one time. Uh, you know, Toby Keith is kind of this hack country artist i'll say it and uh his manager actually i think is is from noblesville so for whatever reason his manager saw a review i i wrote about one of toby's show out at uh deer creek and uh let's see points in the email were things like uh so there was a there was a this is a little inside uh as a, as a, as a working journalist, um, sometimes, uh, tickets are comped. Sometimes they aren't. We had a, a, an era at the star where our editor, a very, uh, fine ethical policy was that we paid for every ticket, right? So that's not the way it is now, but there were several years where every time I would go to a show, I would pay for the ticket and then expense the star. So in this email, the manager said, I heard you pay for tickets, which makes me glad because we're getting your money and you're my favorite type of journalist because you know nothing. And, uh, (laughs) but the, the clincher was how he signed this email. It was like this kind of cryptic advice to me, which I kind of liked. It was like, be cool. Topwater. Uh, signed millionaire, you know, Toby Keith's manager. So he got the millionaire part in there. I, I have no, uh, I got nothing there, but I, I, I didn't, I don't understand that phrase. Be cool. Topwater. It's like something out of a old Western movie. I don't, do you, are you familiar <laughs> with that, with that term? No, I was just going to assume that uh, Lindquist was Swedish for topwater. Oh, maybe that's it. That could be it. But uh, yeah, but then again, over time and years, I have a good relationship with that gentleman. Um, you, you've mentioned you've mentioned three concerts. Uh, I actually went uh, the, the McCartney concert that was on Bastille Day. It was July 14th, about six or seven years ago. I took my kids there. Three hundred dollars a ticket. But I wanted my kids when they are older. So when people are in their fifties and sixties, like we are, or like I am or older, and they're talking smack about the concerts they've seen another area where Mark Allen is undefeated and the artists that they've seen. I told my kids, I said in 2060, when you're with your friends talking smack about music, I want you to be able to say you saw Paul McCartney play Beatles songs in person. 
Yeah, yeah. It was enormously expensive, but it's probably the best concert I've ever been to. Been to a few amazing Rush shows, but but that was off the charts. Um, I actually went to a Toby Keith concert. Uh, it was an interesting experience. I'm not a fan of country music, but it's going to kind of lead me into my next question. And that is when you go to review artists or, or genres of music that aren't um, your particular cup of tea. Sure. How do you, how do you do that? I mean, it would take, if I was a music critic and I had to go see Miranda Lambert, I don't know any of her songs. I really don't know anything about her, but she has this amazing, incredibly loyal following. She's clearly very talented. If I had to go in there and do that, I'm not sure that I could pull it off. Is that where your journalistic training comes into play and just your experience? Uh, a little bit. Um, if I could just quickly reset, uh, if someone wants, might be curious about the policy of accepting free tickets to a show. Um, my personal philosophy is when I go to cover a show, it's the equivalent of a sports writer covering yeah. a sporting event and they have press boxes and accommodations that are, you know, set aside very specifically for them. Uh, a concert seating grid is not the same, but I think it's certainly fine for the show to set aside 10 or so tickets for journalists covering the show. Uh, just wanted to throw that in there. Well, um, the leaders and legends podcast endorses that view. <laughs> thank you. Uh, so, yeah. So when I go to a show, I just kind of put myself in the mindset of if I were a fan of this artist, what are my expectations? So that can kind of quickly become like a checklist. Um, do they play the songs that I need them to play? I mean, uh, if you're, uh, if you go see John Cougar Mellencamp and he doesn't play Jack and Diane and pink right, houses exactly. and rumble yeah, yeah. seat, then it's like, well, then what the hell are you doing? That's who <laughs> right, the, right, that's right. what the fans want to see. Yeah, yeah. It was a, the famous <laughs> story of Neil, of Neil Young, right? After he does live rust, this amazing album has this incredible tour. And then I think his next album I'm not much of a music historian, but his next album is his techno pop stuff. Yeah. And his fans, the, Geff, the Geffen years where he uh, experimented. <laughs> fans every just revolted. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so another thing that I think about is sound quality, which is not a fun thing to write about, but it, I think it's so important in terms of, in terms of consumer experience. Um, and I've certainly had my chance over the years to write about bad sound and bad mixes at shows. But I think that's, that's something that's important to people. Um, rapport, if the, if the artist comes into your city and seems aware of where they are and cares about the audience rather than just, you know, not even saying hello during the show, I think that's something that goes into uh, the conscious experience, you know, stuff like that. How so often so do you... with, with that checklist, I can go see Rascal Flatts, who I consider to be the opposite of music, and still write a review. <laughs> Another caveat that I should say is that I think sometimes people think I am not, I have no use for country music, modern country music. Uh, that is not true. Um, but there are, there aren't a ton of uh, acts that excel in that genre, but at the same time, 
you know, Dirks Bentley, amazing. Casey Musgraves, amazing. Eric Church, amazing. We're overdue for an Eric Church show. I, I hope when this is all over, Eric Church comes and plays Indianapolis. And I'm not. The only thing that I could say about country music based on my, quite frankly, searching of YouTube videos, most of the stuff that I look at is is older guitar pace based music to me jerry reed is the most underrated person in the history of music if you want to see a guitarist just absolutely make your jaw drop it's the snowman from smoking in the bandit (laughs) i agree look up videos of him playing next to chet atkins and chet atkins shaking his head at what jerry reed can do or a guy like albert lee uh, I'm not a huge fan of the Eagles. I mean, I'm a fan, but I'm not a fan of them like I am Zeppelin or Van Halen or Rush or Prince. But I'd go see them just to see Vince Gill play guitar. Yep. yep. Does that happen to you where you're like, you know, I'm going to review this concert or you go on your own, right? Because you can you can go on your own and not have to be a journalist that night and say, I want to watch this person play. And if there is a person or one or two you want to talk about real quick before we get to the five questions, sure. Who would that be? Um, well, I, I mentioned earlier how I spend so many of my nights watching Jeff Tweedy's uh, broadcasts, his live streams on Instagram. And really, if you're wanting to be picked up for an hour during all of this, it's kind of hard to find. It's an Instagram profile called Stuff in Our House. And that's his wife's Instagram profile where she just shows all these crazy. She's like a thrift store <laughs> uh, guru. Uh, she she just posts pictures of all this crazy stuff in her house. But so Jeff is in a band called Wilco, and their guitarist Nels Klein. He's gets that five spot that I couldn't think of earlier. Uh, he's an amazing guitarist. So yeah, when you go see Wilco, you want to see Nels Klein play guitar. Um, I mean the. The thing about uh, a live performance, and this is something we're missing now, is a concert isn't like a TV show or a film. Like a concert was not prepared in advance for you. A concert is the only time that that artist and that audience are going to be in that room. You know, that's a that's a one time shot, and uh, I mean that's why. I love going to shows and I, I just just having the the honor to record that over 22 years for Indianapolis is just a thrill and I, I'm eager to do it again. Do you we're going to we're going to follow the Dave Lindquist interview template and ask the harsh question here at the end. <laughs> OK, good, good policy. <laughs> well, well, we ask we'll ask a nice harsh question have you ever written something that you've regretted have you ever regretted not writing something dang that is a stumper is that one of the five (laughs) no okay (laughs) because you know you go you, you you know you go see an artist Uh, and you really, really want it to be a good show, and they just 
they bomb for one night for whatever, right? I've had podcasts where I've done and, and right afterwards I've texted my guru, Chris Spangle, and my text to him is, I sucked. Gosh, I should have asked these questions and I didn't, or I just didn't have the energy or whatever. And I haven't done many of these, probably in, in the 60s, 70s at this point. But have you ever pulled your punches because you liked the artist or liked their music and felt like, you know what? I should have called them to account for this and I didn't do it. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably happened. Uh, nothing is springing to mind. I can talk about the, maybe like the most, uh, maybe the most important concert review I've ever written was when uh, Glenn Campbell came to play Carmel's Palladium. Speaking of great guitarists. Yeah. Yeah. So, Glenn was doing some dates with Jimmy Webb, the great singer songwriter who wrote Wichita lineman. Uh, and, uh, a couple other songs that were hits for Glenn. Right. So this was a show at the Palladium in Carmel. Um, amazing room. Uh, you know, they don't always have shows that I would cover. Sure. Uh, sometimes they, sometimes they'll book an act like a year after they after the act has played Old National Center. So it's not like, oh, I just covered that person there. I'm going to cover them this next show at the Palladium. But uh, certainly this Glenn Campbell, Jimmy Webb show caught my eye. And I thought, yeah, I want to see that. Because I thought maybe during the evening, there might be some interplay, some interaction with Jimmy and Glenn on stage. It didn't play sure. out that way. Jimmy did a very conventional opening set and then here comes Glenn Campbell right it was pretty obvious within you know a song or two that something was very off with Glenn um you know it's more it was beyond just not knowing words or fumbling lyrics uh like after every song he would like seem to look for his musical director like in a band usually the music musical director is the keyboard player he would he would ask like what key is this in and what song are we doing and it was just it was kind of a painful sure. show to watch it was a painful 90 minutes and at the time uh glenn campbell had been in the news within the past four or five years for uh kind of one of those really embarrassing not attractive DUI mugshots, right? Um, Second only to Nick Nolte's. Right, yeah, definitely in that in that ballpark. <laughs> and as a reporter, one thing I can never do is I cannot I cannot assume what a person has done with their day. I, I would never, you know, speculate on what someone had ingested or their, you know, what they how they might be altered going on stage. But what I did write was, uh, it's escaping me a little bit, uh, something like distracted at worst, disoriented at best. I mean, this was a kind of a train wreck of a show. And so I, we published that, got some heat from readers who were like, why are you beating them on Glenn Campbell? And so I did not pull my punches on Glenn Campbell. And as I thought about it, um, Glenn probably was not getting a lot of concert reviews at that time of his career because 
sometimes artists just reach a point where they're not the flavor of the month anymore. And they're just sure. out on the road playing to 2,500 people a night and newspapers don't co- go and cover those shows. But I, I, I wrote that review and within a week, his family disclosed uh, his Alzheimer's diagnosis, right? Sure. And I was like, that's something that could have helped me going into that show because that, that changes everything. You know, if I go into that show knowing that it just, it sets all the variables to a, to a different way. Distracted and disoriented becomes brave and courageous. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, when that, when that announcement came out, I obviously was like, Oh, what a horrible thing for a person to have to go through. Uh, But I also felt, you know, slightly vindicated because I you wrote about what you saw something was about what you saw yeah yeah uh but I then there was was another wave of people beating up on me like why did you attack this poor man in this state uh but uh yeah so not that dissimilar to the Warren Zevon situation uh Glenn then had a couple of years where he made recordings uh, did a very uh, triumphant victory lap of shows. And I, I did see one of his last run of shows uh, at, at, at Old National Center. And, and again, if you go into the show knowing a person's circumstances, you treat, you treat the show differently. Sure. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel and Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose, McKinney, and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Leaders and Legends podcast guest today is David Lindquist from the Indianapolis Star. Are you ready for the five questions? Let's do it. What was your first job? Yeah, it has to be newspaper carrier. Um, Got up at 530, delivered about 75 newspapers. Collecting was the worst. (laughs) Nothing, Nothing like going into someone's home every two weeks you know, begging for a buck 75. And what's really the worst is going to the door. They're not home. A week passes. You come the next time. And then it's like twice as much as you're asking. And maybe they're not there that time. The third time, you know what you do? You eat it yourself because you're so afraid of the conflict with this person. You're going to ask now $5. for. I don't know if you've heard of Jimmy O'Donnell. I don't know. He was the Indianapolis uh, native who was a survivor of the USS Indianapolis. Wow. Yeah, There's yeah. a statue of him outside the city market. Okay. He was on my brother Michael's uh, Indianapolis news route, and my brother was so scared of him, I don't think he ever collected <laughs> from him. <laughs> Question number two, what was your first concert? Uh, that I, I wanted to go to myself. Uh, was probably Survivor at the 1984 Illinois State Fair. Not a very esteemed first show, but 
the it opening was post, it was post rocky three so they had oh hit, yeah, right? yeah 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 they were riding high uh but the the supporting act that night was mitch mitch Ryder and the detroit wheels which is a lot of cred you know that's that's <laughs> so i could say mitch Ryder and the detroit wheels but it was survivor number three if you could suggest any book for someone to read which book would you recommend Oh, I'm a huge fan of uh, David Foster Wallace, who's really hard to read and people don't like it usually when they read it. So, I mean, I would, if someone has a lot of time like they do now and you want to try Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace, I wish you luck. Number four, if you could witness any event in history, be there in person as it happens, which event would you choose? Great question. Uh, I'm a Cubs fan, Robert, and I've seen on television the Cubs win the World Series. I guess if I could have been there that night in Cleveland, that would be it. I just ran into Pete Seat, local uh, PR pro. He was he had his Cubs hat on and was walking a dog named Paxton <laughs> that was named after a Chicago Bulls yeah, know, shooting yeah. guard. Yeah. Last question. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, two hours off the record, whom would you choose? Another good question. I think Bob Dylan and I could have a good conversation. Could so, you understand him? Yeah. I love Bob Dylan. <laughs> <laughs> Did you listen to his uh, latest Inagata DeVita release? Dude, that 17 minute song about the JFK assassination. Oh, Amazing. <laughs> let me ask you two quick follow-ups and then we'll, we'll let you go. All right. I asked you about your first concert. If, if, if you could have seen any concert in history or seen a group whom you haven't seen, whom would you choose or which concert would you see? Yeah. I never checked the box of Nirvana. Uh, I graduated from, college in 1991 uh my first job was in upstate new york um where like fish was exploding but you know the modern rock explosion of the first half of the 1990s was you know excellent all all i paid attention to and that's that's why in the in the long story i moved from sports writing and kind of ended up here but uh so nirvana uh they put out their Big album, Nevermind, and their follow-up album was called In Utero, which I didn't think was that great. I didn't. I thought it was a real step backward. And they were going to play in. Sh- play, they were going to play a show in Springfield, Massachusetts, which was not far from where I was in Glens Falls, New York. And I'm like, I'll catch him next time. Oops, yeah. there was no next time. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to make a thesis statement, and you see if you can tell me in 30 seconds or less that my thesis statement is wrong. Oh. Music when I grew up in the 70s and 80s was great. Music today sucks. You're asking me to uh, defend say, or challenge. De- defend today's music. Well, I got to say, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning is pop culture is so splintered now that it's difficult to find the good stuff but it's out there. Uh, I 
I definitely will concede that the other day when uh, Lady Gaga put together her big uh, pandemic uh, event, that lineup didn't excite me. But I certainly could put together a lineup of modern acts uh, that would be really cool. But it's pretty easy to say that, you know, in the 70s and 80s and the 60s, the stuff that was popular in a lot of instances was the stuff that was really, really great. So, yeah, it's like, I don't know, will rock and roll soon, soon just be the next, next room in the (laughs) dusty hotel where, you know, there's (laughs) jazz, there's blues, there's rock and roll. You know, these were things that were hugely important and popular to people. And now they're, they're niches. I don't know. David Lindquist, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I enjoy talking to people who have interacted with great people who have been there, who have witnessed, who have who've firsthand have had conversations with, with great artists and, you know, for good or for ill, uh, you speak the truth about them. Uh, we're all, everyone I know is a big fan of your writing at the star and here's hoping for many, many more years of reading <laughs> your journalism. I really appreciate that sentiment. Thanks, Robert. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Thank you.